welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name's Emil Kalinowski, and today we're going to be going over the correlation between the Japanese currency and repo fails. Now, to me, this sounds like a little bit of a slow motion repeat of October 15th, 2014. And what that date means, we're going to ask Jeff to explain it, but it's a it's the day is repeating over and over in a slow motion. The panic is not there in Japan, a bit like Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, right? It's a lousy, lousy day over and over and over. Now we've been having it for two years. And Jeff, in the movie, the correlations were one, right? Once Bill Murray knew what was going to happen exactly, he could react to it day by day. And the correlation that is taking place between the currency the yen and repo fails in the United States are fantastic in real life outside of Hollywood. You won't find something like that. But people will say, nah, it's, it's random. It's, it's like saying, what was that? There was that octopus that would pick the Super Bowl winner every year, right? They would <laughs> dangle a human over some tank over at SeaWorld and the Kraken would reach up and pull down some human that was wearing some team colors. And they say, oh, well, year after year after year. They're pick, the Kraken's picking the right team. Jeff, tell us about this correlation and whether or not it's purely random. Well, it appears to be, right? I mean, because if you don't really know what you're looking at or why you're looking at it or what it actually represents, it just seems like one of those kind of freakonomics things, right? It's U.S. dollar repo fails and Japan's yen. What do those two things have to do with one another? In one hand, it, it seems like they could not be farther apart or it could not be more unrelated. Yet when you put these two these two graphs together, these two data series together, you will be hard pressed to find a correlation as robust and as lengthy as that. And you, like you said, Emil, it's not like you know how many how many days did they think that uh, Bill Murray went through in the movie his character? I mean, they were talking about like ten thousand years worth of yeah, days. I mean, thousands of years. Yeah. And so the, you know, this is, we're not talking about a correlation that's a couple days or a couple weeks here. It's been a few years now where this correlation is pretty darn close. Um, I haven't done the scatter plot, but if I did, I imagine it would be a very narrow band where there's definitely a relationship there. So what's left for us to do, having identified this correlation, is to not is to make sense of it, to say, okay, this is what's actually happening here. When you understand what the Japanese yen actually represents and what U.S. dollar repo fails are, in terms of how they relate to banks in Japan, it makes it makes more sense than maybe you think. Jeff, did you ever see Lost in Translation with Bill Murray and that woman in the that superhero woman in the spandex? Did you ever see that one? Uh, yeah, I think I did. Maybe remember there was the scene where he is advertising a whiskey in Japanese, and everyone speaks Japanese. He doesn't. And the director is giving a monologue of what he wants Bill Murray to do. And then the translator gives him, look into the camera with intensity. <laughs> it was just very funny. But the punchline, or not the punchline, the, the thing he was supposed to be saying is Suntory time. The whiskey was Suntory. And they, he wants everyone to have a good Suntory time. So again, Bill Murray, time, Japan. Perfect. It's happening right now. Groundhog Day. Now you're just making random correlations. <laughs> no. Ground time being repeated. Which day is being repeated? Groundhog Day? Right. No. October 15th, 2014. What happened on that day with U.S. Treasuries? 
Well, according to the official government story, a bunch of computers went nuts. It was sort of like uh, the movie Terminator 2, where Skynet became <laughs> active for like a couple, what was it, 12 minutes, I believe. Um, and basically, it was a panic in the treasury market, but not a panic where everybody was selling. It was a panic where everybody was buying. And of course, this confuses everybody. Um including the government, including the Fed, all the alphabet soup of agencies that investigate it, because why in the hell would everybody be buying treasuries during a period of robust growth, the best job market in decade, Janet Yellen, the Fed, going to be ultra hawkish going forward into 2015. So the last thing that people would be buying would be these U.S. treasuries that many think are just worthless. But yet for 12 minutes, and it wasn't just 12 minutes, but those 12 minutes in particular, early morning on October 15th, Treasury yields absolutely plunged. They went, I think it was 30 some basis points to 10 year yield at its lowest point. So this is atypical. So you can see why the government got involved because you never see big moves like that. I got too excited about my loss in translation uh, illusion or reference, and I did the audience a disservice. We should go back, Jeff, and explain why there is a correlation between these repo fails and the yen. And you explained that in your article at Real Clear Markets, which was posted on the 2nd of September 2022. And the title is, It's Not Just the Japanese Who Can't Afford to Wait for the Inevitable Truth. And you remind us of the carry trade. In the article, you say you're not going to go into too many details, but you will give us the short version of it. Jeff, Explain to us why there is a connection between the currency and repo fails and collateral and the carry trade. Very, and we've talked about this before on the show, and I'm sure you could find it on one of the previous podcasts. But very briefly, the carry trade is not the carry trade. It's really essentially the idea that Japanese banks don't really want to do anything in Japan. So they're heavily involved in international commerce and international finance, particularly redistributing U.S. dollar resources into China. So the Japanese banks are essentially swapping, in one sense, borrowing, but usually using derivatives, currency swaps. Uh, They're active in the swap market, uh, sourcing U.S. dollars from various sources and then pocketing a spread, usually through maturity transformation, by relending those dollars into China under for longer term. So they're borrowing short term in euro dollars through derivatives and they're lending longer term, usually through more formal debt relationships. Uh, which creates a maturity mismatch. But to borrow in short run, you kind of need collateral. So Japanese banks are essentially short dollars and short collateral. And if collateral becomes expensive or hard to source, then that's going to be difficult for Japanese banks, uh, which means that they're going to have to find some way to pay up a, a liquidity premium, which we see in a falling Japanese yen. So the yen goes down at the same time repo fails goes up because of these Japanese banks doing these activities in between. Repo fails are a sign that collateral is hard to come by. Japanese yen falling tells us that Japanese banks are paying through the nose to really to extract themselves from the from what isn't really a yen carry trade. It's euro dollar redistribution. They're short dollars, they're short collateral and they're short time. You warn, you remind us that there's a. <laughs> you worked that one in very well, Emil. Thank Good you. Job. A maturity mismatch because yes. they're borrowing at a much shorter time span. I have no idea how long, maybe overnight, a month, three months, a year, I'm not sure, but their investments are much longer in, say, let's China. So there's a maturity mismatch plus their short time, assuming something will go wrong someday, one day, 
which is what happened on October 15th, 2014. And so help me segue from what we just explained, the carry trade, them being short collateral, their currency, and that what happened on the 14th, 15th of October and who Simon Potter is as well and the government uh, investigation into that day. You're giving me a mouthful here to go through this. Oh, all right, one, one part of the time. Let's set aside then. Japan for a moment. Let's uh-huh. focus on the repo and collateral end of things. So the Japan part, we'll get back to it toward the end, but repo and collateral here is our focus. So what happened on October 15th wasn't really about October 15th. It was sort of the culmination of a trend that had begun months beforehand. Essentially, we saw repo fails spike around May and really June and July of 2014, which was an indication of problems, collateral shortages, all the usual stuff. At the same time, by the way, you remember June and July 2014, the U.S. dollar started to go on a rampage. All of a sudden, it just skyrocketed out of nowhere. Remember, oil prices began to crash, all that stuff, all that happened in the middle of 2014. Um, we started seeing junk bond prices, leverage loans, euro bond prices start to go down, which is a key component in some of the more risky ends of the collateral spectrum. As those things started to pile up, it, it just built up and built up and the stress built up and built up until you get into October of 2014. And then again, the 15th of 2014, where it just, it just all hit at once. Everybody was hit with a collateral call, which meant that People just had to pile into U.S. treasuries as much as any treasuries they could bind at any price that they could pay. And so that looked very strange, very weird, very disconcerting. People complained. I don't know which people, but somehow it got to the government's ears and the government put out a study. The study was very unsatisfactory. Before that study was published, in the, when was the study published? Almost a year later, Jeff? It was July by the time, by the time they got around to it. Before then, Simon Potter went up in front of a bunch of primary dealers at some sort of event or a speech, and he explained what his thoughts were about what collateral, but he couldn't link collateral and the pricing of other securities. He's talking about the treasury market. Yeah, he still he talked to the primary dealers about what happened on October 15th, and you would think that he would they would all know what happened, but yet he just said, look. The government report and the official government um, position on October 15th was that it was errors in computer trading. Essentially, there was too much. There was an imbalance in order flow. Liquidity wasn't particularly great. Um, there were some glitches in the system, so to speak. And as these orders came in through computerized trading, the system couldn't handle it. And it led to a price imbalance, essentially an air pocket in prices, but where prices were going up, not down. They never talked about why that was? Why was there so much of an imbalance of buying over selling? More importantly, why was it that dealers were not supplying treasuries that the market seemed to be demanding? It was just put down to nothing more than irregularities in computer trading, which is odd because Mr. Potter, who was at that time, what is the, t- they changed the title all the time. Was it manager of the system open market, system executive, open market manager, whatever. <laughs> executive vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's markets group. Yeah. So he was, I think that was his job then. He, he, whether he was system open market manager at that time or that was later, I don't remember off the top of my head. But either way, this is, this is the person at the Fed who's supposed to know everything that's, that's going on there. 
And as he's talking to the primary dealers, he said, well, the treasury market's important because obviously it's the treasury market. It's the risk-free rate. A lot of stuff depends upon the treasury market. And then sort of, oh, by the way, treasuries are also used as collateral for transactions uh, all over the financial system. So he admits that that's the case. Primary dealers are like, yes, we know that that's what happened. But then he excludes that from all analysis. They never mention it again. In fact, you go to the July 2015 government report, the word collateral does not appear even once. Not once. And this was not a small report. I think it was 70 some odd pages, lots of charts, lots of appendixes, lots of discussion, lots of text. Nothing about collateral. Zero. So Simon Potter, in a couple months before the report comes out, says treasury market's really important because it, you know, the risk-free rate influences monetary policy. Oh, by the way, collateral. Government report comes out, nothing about collateral whatsoever. But when you look at October 15th, unless you're willing to buy that it was a bunch of rogue computers gone wrong, and you can see all the other things, you can't see all the other things that happened beforehand. It doesn't make any sense, nor does it make any sense how October 15th fits into the grand scheme of what we call euro dollar number three, which is why that uptick in growth or why the U.S. dollar suddenly moved up in exchange value, why, why commodity markets suddenly crashed. You can't explain these things except, well, I mean, you couldn't even, the common mainstream explanation for those things is the Fed was tightening policy, but you couldn't even use that excuse in 2014 and 2015, because the Fed really wasn't doing those things. You know, rate hikes were years down the road. Yeah, that's the the sentimental effect, right? In December, was it December 2014? They got in one? 2015. Was it 2015? They wanted to in 2014. They changed their mind. Got it, got it. And that's why the dollar surged to unbelievable heights in the middle of 2014. <laughs> yes, yeah, so someday, maybe down the road, the Fed might actually hike rates, and that's going to explain a massive surge in U.S. dollar. Forget about repo fail. Forget about collateral. Forget about all these other things. It's Fed, 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 Fed. Okay, Jeff, we're going to link that to Japan later. But before we do, we're going to bring in one more thread. And that is, of course, the very famous report, the one we've <laughs> all heard about, FR2004. Why is that important? Specifically, though, FR, we want FR2004C. So uh-huh. not even A and B so much. You want to yes. focus on FR2004C. And the reason we bring up FR2004C is because that's where we get our repo fail data from. It, when I say we, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York requires the primary dealers to report this FR2004C and A and B, report that weekly. And FR2004C focuses particularly on repo fails. So the reason we even know repo fails is because this report or this call report is filed with the FRBNY weekly. So we know, I mean, the Fed knows about repo fails. The dealers know about repo fails. They have the data for repo fails. And I should say that this is not comprehensive. As we've talked about many times on the show, this is only a glimpse of what primary dealers are experiencing in their own businesses and their own operations which does not encompass the entire whole of repo, but we can make a reasonable conclusion that this is a reasonable proxy for what must be going on across the entire repo market. If primary dealers are reporting a whole lot of repo fails, then it's likely that the entire repo market is experiencing the same level of strain and stress. 
So using FR2004C, we at least have some idea what's going on in repo fails, though it is up to us to interpret them in a way that the government refuses to. Jeff, it's an interesting coincidence that the first time this report came into light or was requested or was put together was in 1990. Now, I can think of three things that were happening in that year. Uh, there was a fire and water damage that took out Fedwire for a little bit of time. There was an invasion of Kuwait and Solomon Brothers and some sort of scandal involving two kinds of books being kept so that people can get as much collateral treasury paper as possible on their books without alerting the government to it. Coincidence? Which one of those three? Or maybe it was all three. Yeah, and I th it's another one of those things that sounds like it's a random coincidence. And this one, I, you know, I spent probably way too much time trying to pin this down. And people will probably not be all that surprised to find out that there isn't a whole lot of information on the history of FR2004C. But what we do know is that coincidentally or not, in July of 1990, at the very height of this Solomon Brothers scandal that involved collateral, the uh, government, which had been modestly collecting data from primary dealers on repo and collateral ever since the 1960s, believe it or not. But in 1990, July 1990, for whatever reason, wink, 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 they decided we need more granular detail. This FR2004C, we need dealers to give us a little bit more of, a, of, a, of insight into their dealer books, their collateral books, because... Well, we don't know if it's specifically because, but I think it's it's not too much of a stretch to guess what was going on with Solomon Brothers at the time. Not just Solomon Brothers, as you just referenced, Emil, pretty much every single bond dealer that was in existence in the early 1990s had been cheating because they needed, or at least they felt they needed, the best quality on the run, the most liquid stuff. They were willing to go to the extreme lengths of fraud, committing outright fraud in order to secure it. You know, it boggles the mind here, right? The Federal Reserve says, okay, they're cheat everybody's cheating on collateral. They're cheating to get collateral. We need the primary dealers to report more information for us on collateral. But then, you know, as we mentioned on a previous podcast when what was it, Mr. Williamson back in the 50s had wrote, you know, you guys. This repo repurchase stuff is a huge part of your balance sheet, yet you never, ever talk about it. It's like this conspiracy of silence on repo and collateral. Even the 1990 Solomon Brothers scandal, dealer scandals at GSCs, you read that government report. And that's like a hundred some pages there. They talk about collateral in very limited ways. But they mostly chalk that up as something more along the lines of a short squeeze, as if Solomon Brothers was cornering the market on treasuries to drive up their price. It's just it's so frustrating because they have all the necessary information right there in front of them. But they always refuse to put these things together when it's really not hard to do so. And the question is, why? What are, what are they afraid of? What is it that they don't want to see from? All of this history and information that's in front of him. I think that there's someone in charge who's watching this show. And <laughs> that's why recently they refurbished, updated the report and they asked for more information. Jeff, this is the 
third update. Is that correct? There was one, the original one, then 2004, and now 2022. Any reason there was an update to the report in 2004 that you want to share? And then most importantly, in 2022, January, what did the new report tell us? Anything useful? Yes, the new report in 2004, there's really not much there. I mean, there's just sort of a reform there, but still, the idea that we need to collect more information during a particularly uh, interesting period in history, 2000, the middle 2000s, lots of stuff with MBS. So, yeah, again, there's this in the back of the, you know, in the back rooms of, of the, the Fed, the staff meet, the lower level staff, there's this appreciation that there's more to the monetary story here that we need to get into this collateral stuff. Although I don't think it ever rises to the level of realizing that it's this is about the monetary system. It's not just about dealers doing investments or financial. You know, Ben Bernanke trying to make this into a financial thing when it's really a monetary thing. But then in January this year, they reformed FR 2004C again to specifically collect more data on the parts of the repo market that we cannot see. So again, you, you get this feeling that they kind of know. They have this idea that they need to more information about the stuff because maybe it's that important. And yet still don't kind of put everything together. Um, this is something that actually a couple of members brought up in our members Q&A. So, you know, obviously we have very well attuned and uh, the members uh, membership who are really paying attention to the really nitty gritty details, which is to me, that's terrific because it always helps out with everybody else looking at things, too. And so what FR 2004C in January found out and the results were not just were just published last month. So, you know, they've been collecting data all year is they've been looking into the uncleared bilateral bespoke repo, which is that part of repo, which is basically, I still think it's the majority. They say it's about half and half, triparty, cleared, uh, whatever, versus what's out there in the shadows. But either way, they started asking about maturities. There's your time component. You know, what is the maturities in repo? What types of collateral are being used? And there are all sorts of other information about this part of the repo market that's before now really has been kind of left to the imagination. And what they found, it was kind of surprising to me because I wasn't really thinking about it at the time. But when I saw the chart for, you know, I think it was figure four, whatever it was, they found in the uncleared, this part of the repo market that we're interested in, almost all of it was U.S. Treasuries. And of course, that was surprising when I didn't think about it, it was surprising because we know there's not U.S. Treasuries out there in that part of the market. That's where all the action is. But then I stopped and I remembered, oh, wait a minute. This is the Fed collecting the data from the perspective of the repo market, from the perspective of primary dealers. So all they're seeing is U.S. Treasuries. They're not gathering information on all the collateral for collateral swaps or the transformations that are taking place behind all that. The shadows of the shadows, so to speak, that's the stuff we want to get to. And this new FR2004C update only gets to like one foot into the shadows, not going further into them, not enough, far enough into them. So from the perspective of the repo market, it looks like everybody has U.S. treasuries because that's really the point. When you're borrowing treasuries as a risky hedge fund, for example, you got junk bonds and you're borrowing treasuries, you're putting up the treasuries, not the junk bonds in repo. So far as the repo market is concerned, all you see is U.S. treasuries, which simply reinforces the notions, the, several of them, but the primary notion that you need U.S. Treasuries. <laughs> so at, at specific times, like the middle of 2014, then it's not just an option. 
you have to have U.S. Treasuries. And at, at certain periods of time where funding conditions become that severe, that acute, you pay whatever you have to pay to either rent them or buy them or get them in some way. That's how you summarized it. The October experience, quote, it was a margin or really a collateral call, which provoked a reverse of too many collateral for collateral swaps, which we're still not privy to. We're still not getting any insight to, even though we've had this latest update, leaving those suddenly exposed to panic bid whatever good and useful collateral they could get at whatever price it took to get it. And is that what is happening in a slow motion sense in Japan with the currency and the repo fails? Is that the connection? Yeah, we haven't had that, you know, massive one day, 12 minute panic that really focused energy. Although, I mean, in the smaller sense, we have seen that, right? I mean, we've seen these scramble for collaterals, particularly in treasury bills, especially in the middle of June, especially in March and April, which correspond to, again, repo fails, which then correlate almost perfectly with the Japanese yen. So it hasn't been as focused, as concentrated as a panic as on October 15, 2014, or May 29th of 2018. Um, we haven't seen those types, but it is, it is, there are these mornings where, and it's funny that the scrambles for collateral usually come about during the Asian portion of the U.S. Treasury market. So it's not that hard of a leap to get from repo fails, lack of collateral, the yen carry trade to JPY. But all of it has to do with collateral, euro dollars. Real money, not the Federal Reserve, not rate hikes, none of this other, not QT. Bank reserves don't have a role here. It's about the, the way the euro dollar actually works in redistributing monetary resources throughout the world. And Tokyo is a huge part of that. And it seems like the people in charge still don't have any insight into that. They're not even asking for the information. They don't even know that part is missing based on this latest update to the repo fails report. I think that there's a tension there. I think that there's a tension from the bottom up where staff level says, this stuff is really important. We need to do this. Where from the top down, the policymakers are, no, we do things this way. Bank reserves are everything. QE, Oil QT. prices. Yeah, exactly. Now, unemployment rate. They're not resisting the data collection because who would resist the data collection? But they're resisting making any more of it. And that's why it takes so damn long for these things to happen. Why are we doing FR 2004C updates in January of 2022? That should have been January 2009, if at any later, because collateral was a huge part. If you, I mean, if you ask me what happened in 2008, 2009, it was some prime mortgages. It was a collateral shortage. So January 2009 should have been, well, we need, to, we need as much information on this repo market as we possibly can get. So I think there is a level of awareness of how important this stuff is it parts of the bureaucracy, but you know bureaucracies. They're resistant to anything that challenges their worldview. And nothing challenges the bank reserves. Uh, we're the center of the monetary universe, quite like repo collateral and derivatives and things like that. So it's this, this kind of tension where they know that we, we got something here, but yet they're not willing to interpret it the right way. 